Hi, my name is Miranda Shorty, and this is the Adaptive Edge of Education. And today my guest is my student. His name is Kyan McDonald. He is a senior and he is graduating effective immediately. <laughs> this was his last real day of classes. Um, but he is here with me today to talk a little bit about some adaptive challenges in education, uh, despite being educationally fantastic and stellar in terms of his grades. He's also the president of the student-driven student voice and leadership here um, at the school that I work at. And he is uh, absolutely brilliant. He was a co-founder of that program, and um, which I advise. And he and I have uh, worked together on constructing what that program would look like. And in addition to that, he's quite possibly one of the most brilliant students I have ever met. So I am thrilled to have him on to talk about some different adaptive challenges related to education and to pick his brain about what this looks like from the student's perspective. Um, so Kyan, I'm going to have you now introduce your topic, what you want to talk about today, and you can talk a little bit about your experience related to this topic and uh, from your perspective, your educational experience, um, what this has been like for you. All right. So my topic was hidden stories um, and the importance of telling them. Um, I think the biggest, the person that sticks out the most for me would be the story of Nikola Tesla and how little he's talked about educationally, I think, other than like YouTube videos, because uh, everyone always hears about Thomas Edison and the light bulb, but they don't hear about like the invention of AC power and all of Nikola Tesla's things that things that he's done, like the reason that we have half of the electronics we do today is because of Nikola Tesla. Great. Um, and why do you think this isn't a dominant portion of your educational experience? Or why do you think this has become a hidden story? I think it's become a hidden story because Nikola Tesla was always like the do good for humanity. Like I don't need the money as long as it's doing the job and people are having access to my technology or the thing that I'm doing. And Thomas Edison was very much the like capitalize on this idea, build it up and move to the next idea. And just like path of like, as much as Thomas Edison has done good for like the scientific field, he kind of left the path of like destruction of just like, mm -hmm what he was willing to do or harm to get the money or the fame that he wanted. And really, I think that, well, I guess I'll start with a little bit of history on Tesla is Tesla um, was trying to prove that AC power was superior to DC power and DC power being Edison's uh, invention, AC being Tesla's invention. And Thomas Edison was obviously not a fan of this um, and really just out campaigned him kind of because he had the money and he had all this but Nikola Tesla came from he was an immigrant from Serbia who came to the United States in very little money um, but Thomas Edison did end up funding him uh, as like a an apprentice gave him a laboratory and I think it was in New York which eventually burned down mysteriously hmm. because a Bunsen burner the police report claimed the Bunsen burner was left on but Nikola Tesla wasn't a chemist. He didn't need a Bunsen burner. He didn't have one. So, you know, there's <laughs> that problem. But yeah, Thomas Edison had the money and the fame and he was like a very much like the businessman. Nikola Tesla was like the looking out for the people, but really just didn't have the money or the like the power to do a whole lot. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So um, in terms of this being an adaptive challenge in education, how could you identify the emphasis on Edison versus Tesla um, as educationally? How could you or yeah, how could you identify that as an adaptive challenge in terms of why would it require a change in the way that people think about education or the mindsets of people in education to include? that Tesla narrative as equivalent to or yeah. even superior to the narrative of Edison? Yeah. Um, I think that's important, or at least for me, 
it was very important when I realized that this happened to Tesla, but school, I went at school, I learned a whole lot more than just like science and stuff. So who else has been silenced or who else has been censored or whatever by a super, like a, a overwhelming force or sure. some more powerful entity? Sure. Um, can you think of a reason why education would want to display the narrative of Edison over Tesla? Like, what is it about our society or what would push education to prefer that narrative? Yeah. So I, I think personally that it was more of the idea of like venture capital, like go out, create an idea and run with it strictly for the money that you make. And if you improve people's lives, great, but focus on the money first. Okay. And I think that's the mindset that the United States wanted to, or at least the education system wanted to boost or encourage. While Tesla, again, he was like the humanitarian, like wanting to help his fellow person, like improve their lives. There's also another famous thing he did was like with his patents, he, I think he would patent things, but he just wouldn't sue people if they used his stuff. It was just like, as long as you're using it and you're adding to the scientific field or whatever field it was on, he didn't really care. So that's really interesting because that's kind of like this notion of like uh, free market on the internet for information. Yeah. Rather than, um, what is that term you're, I think your generation has invented it, but the term for like uh, gatekeeping, no, like your gatekeeping technology or your gatekeeping um, theory or advancement in sciences or, or industry to protect what? Like you're gatekeeping yeah. that because you don't want other people to have access to what? Yeah. Um, what do you think? I, it's hard to say really but i think it's just access to power power i think sure, they, they want to yeah. keep the power mm -hmm. like uh, the hierarchy they want to keep that in place and they want to keep power very much held at the top or by people that are making money for the country or mm -hmm. for whatever group of people would oversee the thing they were doing sure i think that's really true i think it's gatekeeping for the position of power um and I also think it's gatekeeping for profit. And when you live in a vehemently capitalist society, profit and power, those are highly regarded, right? Yeah. As being like the positions you want to be in. So really, when, when I think of how could this be an adaptive challenge in education, would we have to change the narrative about what is the goal? When you enter a field of study, when you really want to explore something and add to a field of study, would we have to change the way we think about educating people in preference of this notion of just contributing to the knowledge and the science and the understanding and the theory and, and shift that over to, or shift that, shift over to that from the idea of just um, being able to sit in a position of privilege via power and profit when you have the best of something, when you have the newest of something. Yeah. Um, I think that, yeah, we need to encourage like the whole, like the lifelong learner thing, but lifelong learning, I think the the definition of that is very different, I think, from what it's actually portrayed as because you're seen as a lifelong learner if you have like a successful business and whatever but i don't think you really see it as a lifelong learner if your hobby is like electronics your whole life and it's just like something that you add to like sure. out of your own goodwill or interest that's really interesting actually so being a lifelong learner is a part of our like picture of a graduate mm -hmm. if you will right a lot of people have that in their mission and vision statement for their school district or they have that um as like a a metric by which they measure students' um, skills as a student, not just their understanding and, and knowledge of, in each discipline, but their skill specifically as a student. We look at lifelong learning and you and toss that term around a lot. And so, are you, so from your perspective, lifelong learning looks like being successful in in terms of 
how that's being encouraged in school. I think it's, yeah, I think it's encouraged to be that way, but honestly, I think there are also a lot of people that respect, mm -hmm. um, like just genuine good people that want to learn and help people. So I guess there's really two sides of it, but there's definitely an issue of expecting lifelong learners to be these rich, like well-off people instead of being just like a, your, your average person. Is there also an expectation in addition to being rich and successful, is there an expectation of being influential? Um, if you're a lifelong learner, do you need to be, do you need to have some level of power or influence in your field? That's, I'm not really sure. I think certainly in the idea of like Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. when that came up, you know, Zuckerberg and um, Elon Musk before when he created, I don't remember what the previous payment thing was called, but he then created PayPal. Mm -hmm. all, they all very much controlled their fields with Facebook being like social media, PayPal being like electronic transfer. Sure. Yeah, they were seen as like the, like, like you look at your kids or your parents would look at their kids and be like, go do that. Right. You know what I mean, mm -hmm. like, go do that. Like, how do I get like, there? Like, that's the picture of success. Yeah. That's what you're working towards. Yeah, because mm -hmm. like they already control the fields. How do I, do I just sit there for 25, 30, 40 years and then... <laughs> more like more like I don't want to wait there. I want to do my own thing, you know. Right. Yeah. I don't want to have to compete with somebody in my own company. I want to compete with somebody. Sure. I want like a fair race. That's competition. That's really interesting to me. I hadn't thought about this particular issue from that perspective, but I think definitely the resources and the sources we give you while you're in school impact how you see yourself as a learner in the future yeah. and, and what that should look like or what that should mean, right? Mm -hmm. um, Kyan and I have both watched um, a really fantastic video uh, by Chimamandi uh, Ngozi Adichie, and it's called um, The Danger of, of a Single Narrative or a Single Story. And we talked about that video in reference to this idea of there being hidden stories or hidden figures uh, in, in education that we maybe owe more, well, not maybe, we definitely owe more attention to um, and aren't giving. And um, in education at the higher education level, we talk about this a lot. And it's a huge tenet of building curriculum in higher education that the resources and sources that you provide are diversified. That you're not just reading one perspective, one story, for the same reasons that um, uh, Adichie talks about in her in her video in her TED talk. We don't want people to learn just one perspective on a story because that's not a holistic view, right? Mm -hmm. So. Can you think of, from your education and your educational experience, what were some of the most memorable or what um, texts pop out or stand out to you as being like really prominent portions of your educational experience? So what texts were people giving you or teaching you or encouraging you to read? Um... I think it's it's hard for me to say because in like my elementary school, like elementary school and part of middle school, that was very prominent. But in high school, it's actually a lot more of like learning from the teacher directly, which I like. Okay. Um, aside from like math or something, but in like um, English, you know, you follow like some books like uh, like the Hate You Give, right? You know, books like that. But there's not a lot of like textbook. Sure. Um, knowledge or following. I guess in elementary school, um, I can't really remember, honestly. Okay. It's been a while. Do you remember, um, so you read The Hate You Give? Yeah. That was probably freshman year? Uh, I think it was my freshman year, sophomore year. Okay. And then did you take humanities or English? I took English. English. Okay. So in English, when you got to your sophomore year, did you were you here at this school? Yeah. Okay. Did you read The Glass Castle? No. Did you read To Kill a Mockingbird? No. Okay. Did you read... I know what you read junior year, because I taught that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I remember you reading Anthem. Yeah. 
you, you when we did our choice novels, you picked Anthem, right? Yeah, that was really good. Um, yeah, that's a that novel is really intense in terms of considering individualism versus the collective, right? Mm. Um, and then this year, did you have uh, language or did you have humanities? Um, I had or AP Lit. I had English 12 with Mr. BG. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. Do you remember what he taught for novels? Um, we read Malala's book, The Girl Who Shot for the Cup, or... I don't remember the exact... I think that was roughly the title, but it was Malala's book about her childhood and things that she faced, but there was also a lot of like personal reading. Okay. Um, we had to pick our book and then... Do you think in public education we are doing enough for students to get this diversified selection of resources that come from the perspective of multiple sociological identity markers? I think the teachers, for the most part, absolutely are. But I think that really, like the school boards or school boards or um, town governments or like local government, state government, federal government really are not i think they're actually working backwards at this point because it's been in the news a lot like the book banning and sure stuff like that they just in my opinion the craziness going on i'm mm-hmm. um, like attacks on teachers and trying to get like the state back in the classroom sure it's scary but i think that's a big issue do you when you think of who because you wanted to talk about the hidden stories right yeah when you think of that those things that you've been hearing in the news in your mind who is writing the stories that they're trying to hide like what what is the position of or the um sociological group identification of the people that are writing narratives that are others are attempting to hide i think it's a well from personal experience at school it's like the it was the police brutality stuff okay um, was it Angie Young that wrote The Hate You Give? Yeah, her, Angie Thomas. Angie yep. Thomas. Um, a lot of things were like um, against or speaking out against police brutality. Um, let's see, what were the other ones? There were some on like sexual content okay. that were being banned for like like a page that had a sexual encounter or even something that like said the word penis or whatever in it. It was okay. like stupid stuff. A lot of... Uh, like LGBTQ plus topics mm-hmm. where I don't know if they were banned, but they were definitely considered to uh, or being looked at. Or that was the topic of the well, actually, um, it was a book about a uh, trans female, and that was in the town next to us, yeah. <laughs> which you might be thinking of because that one made our yeah, local news heavily. That was uh, a book about a trans female and, and uh, her journey growing over the course of her life and learning about herself and the adversity that she had to face. Um, And that book has been fodder for the book banning movement (laughs) of 2023 um, nationally as well. So I, I know what you're talking about. And I think historically we know that those groups are marginalized. We know that those groups are, um, Mm are vulnerable in terms of being minority populations with a lack of power and influence. Right. Yeah. So, um, I guess what I'm wondering based on that is how would your education. So let's just look at social studies and look at history, right? Mm -hmm. You're supposed to learn about organization and reorganization of human societies. You're supposed to learn about regional and interregional interactions. You're supposed to learn about political, social, economic revolutions. You're supposed to learn about migration of populations. You're supposed to learn about domestic and global challenges. And you're supposed to learn about political systems, power, authority, governance in Maine, the U.S., and then the world. Right. If the majority of your texts were very diverse in perspective, if you were learning about the organization and reorganization of a human society from someone writing 
from the perspective of being um, British during the colonization of Africa, how might that look different in your understanding of organization and reorganization than if you were being taught about that from the perspective of a person who was experiencing that from the other side, who was being colonized? Like yeah. the, the, the image of the, you know, the imperial power or the colonizer versus <laughs> the minority population that's now being reorganized. Um, does that change? Does that perspective change how you learn? Uh, absolutely. So I think, I, I think I'll go with the British example. Is like, you would probably get the kind of language from a British account of what colonization was like. Is like you're, you are educating or helping these like beasts, these just like uneducated, like dangerous, like feral people. Sure. Um. And then from the like John Locke's like, interpretation, yeah, like John Locke's interpretation. <laughs> yeah. But then if you got like the people that were colonized, their interpretations, you've had things come up. Like, I think it was King Leopold of or a king of Belgium, so it wasn't really British, but I assume similar things happened. Where there's a famous picture of a man missing, like from maybe like six inches up from his elbow, sure. missing his hand because um, that was punishment for I don't I don't know if it was not working fast enough or just the smallest amount of like just not following the rules mm -hmm. um, you would lose your hand yeah and so you would learn things of like genocides mass like forced starvations um mass burial grounds executions all kinds of things like shadow or mass shadow like puppet governments for colonies and um forceful like language learning I, that's not the, really the right word but like we're having the united states yeah. with like native languages de deculturing de <laughs> being yeah. people forced assimilation yeah via like, language and culture and religion yeah. and yeah. and like being taught things that were you know quote unquote like the better way of mm -hmm. living and being like being christian and um whatever <laughs> being white but it's not really something you can just learn and become you know what I mean? So I think that's definitely an adaptive challenge yeah. in education. I think that that does require a shift in mindsets. Yeah. I want to know if you think that and why you think that if you do or why you don't think that if you don't. If I think that. it's an It would be an adaptive challenge that rather than just saying um, a, a, a structural challenge would be like, let's just give everyone these books and then everybody has to teach these ones instead because they are more equitable in terms of presenting uh, multiple story perspectives, not just a single narrative, right? Like um, Adiche was talking about. So I think it's more than just that. It's more than just saying we've replaced all the books in the library with an equitable yeah. representative inclusion of many different um, sociological perspectives. I think it's it's more than that. Do you think it's more than that? Do you think that it would require a shift in the way people think about education? I do, yes, because, you know, if you had somebody that just completely replaced a curriculum with something that was deemed to be more equitable, you just have the same issue just it looks different. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're just replacing text with something that seems more palatable. But if you go back, like, you know, way back when the current or the previous educational system was put in place, that's kind of what happened before. And I just mm -hmm. think it's not the right way to go about approaching that problem. I think you have to mix, mix it together. And yeah, you have to have people approach learning differently. It shouldn't be seen as like this like forced upon you by the teacher, like stare at the paper, read it and come to me when you're done. It's like, look at it and like take something away from it, but I'm not going to tell you what to take away from it kind of thing. Like sure. interpret it in your own way. And what is the um, inference that you draw? Yeah. What do you get from this text now? What do I get or what do I want you to get from this text? What do you as a person, as like an individual understand and relate to in this text? Sure. Great. That's a great point. Um, when we look at organizations and the need for a, uh, a full system change um, in, to 
resolve an adaptive challenge, which is adaptive challenges are usually very complex. They're more than just one point solution. Like we can yeah. just give you these books and then you're good to go. Mm -hmm. um, uh, an adaptive challenge requires usually a long time to resolve. It takes more time than just implementing one thing. And it's, and it's complex in that it touches a lot of different components. I like to look at um, organ adaptive challenges through an organizational theory by uh, a couple of folks named Bowman and Deal who wrote this book on organizational theory where they break every organization down. This works for education as much as it would work for this like framework of understanding organizational theory works just as much for education as it does for healthcare, or you could absolutely break down Amazon this way. Like literally any type of organization can be looked at through this perspective. There's four different lenses. Okay. So there's a structural lens, which is actually the, how we do what we do. What are the policies, the protocols, the rules, the tools, the um, resources that we use, right? Then there's the human resources frame, which is uh, a framework to look at challenges that have to do with interpersonal relationships, how people within the organization feel about each other. It's like the family where a, a great analogy for the structural frame is that it's like the manu manufacturer. It's like the factory. It's mm -hmm. how we literally are making things and doing things. The human resources frame is the family that's within the organization and all of the different complicated challenges that can come along with being a part of a family. Um, and then there's the, uh, the political frame, which is what is the power dynamic here? Who is influencing who, how are people interpreting or perceiving the organization from inside of it, but also outside of it and who is in control of making decisions, that kind of thing. And then you also have, the uh, symbolic frame. So this and the the kind of image that we try to evoke when we think of the political frame is like the jungle, right? Like who's the king of the jungle? Who's on top right now? Who's making the decisions? And what agenda are they trying to meet? And then the symbolic frame is the temple. That's like the visual for the symbolic frame. It's the mission and vision, essentially. What is the goal? what is the answer to the question, why are we doing this as an, an organization, right? And I think when you have an adaptive challenge, you frequently have issues you need to resolve in every frame. So the first frame, the political frame, what I see as being an issue for this adaptive challenge of uh, creating more equitable resources within education that are more representative, that don't encourage a single story or the danger of a single story is that you then have to tell people you want diversity in their resources. And I watched a really great presentation um, a year or two ago from a woman who talked about how the human brain is terrified of diversity. We don't like difference. We don't like change. We don't like things that are unknown in our very most primitive basic part of our brain because those things could be dangerous. So like our, our most, uh, the earliest developed portion of our brain sees something that we're not familiar with and kind of panics. Like we don't know this thing. We don't know if it's a threat or not. And when we say diversity, the human brain still kind of feels that way versus when we say equity, the human brain loves equity. It's very excited to hear the word equity because that generally means for the person hearing it, I'm going to be represented too. I'm in there. It's equitable, right? And so in terms of the political frame for this particular adaptive challenge, what I see is the need for us to shift from talking about diversifying and moving into talking about creating equitable content for our, for our students. Can you think of another way in terms of this being an adaptive challenge where people's mindsets have to change. Can you think of another way that this could fall under the political frame? Um, well, you certain, you certainly have people that want to remain in power. Um, and that's not just being like the president, you know, or uh, a senator. While they love power, I'm sure. Um, there's always people in the background lobbying or paying for lobbyists to show up and push an agenda or 
uh, work to have somebody elected that would reflect their their views or ideals. Um, yeah, I think that you have pretty shady groups, <laughs> you know, families, groups, conglomeracies. I like that you use the word shady because we call those people the shadow government sometimes, <laughs> yeah. which is the government that we can't see past the the representative government, the figurehead government, mm -hmm. right? Like the people we elected to represent us. The shadow government is a term that's used for who are these people really representing, who actually got them elected, who paid for their campaign, yeah. and who did they make promises to, to support and push the agenda of to get where they are, right? Yeah. So I like that you called them shady <laughs> because we call that the shadow government. And um, do you think that exists in education? Yes, I do think that exists because ultimately I'm not going to be a student all of my life and mm -hmm. I'm going to have to take something away from the textbooks or somebody is going to want me to take something away from the textbooks. They don't really just want to give out free like knowledge. There's got to be some <laughs> kind of like swaying factor in it. So I'm going to grow up to believe in something. I'm going to grow up and vote for people. Mm -hmm. And I think you're going to have... Um, like the fossil fuel industry or um, the pharmaceutical industry or, you know, big things like that that are under threat now from uh, climate activists or um, people wanting to have better health care. Um, you know, that's like the war happening is mm -hmm. between like trying to sway people and essentially feed them. <laughs> kind of propaganda in school to then grow up and believe or spread um, that against people that are willing to think differently or at least approach things differently. Sure. Yeah. Okay, I have a second question. You just made me think of something else. So if what you're saying is that kind of, well, I know this to be true. I'm not sure if you feel this way, but tell me if you, if you don't agree. Originally, conceptually, in the late 19th century when we were like, we need a public education system and everyone should go to school, right? And by everyone, we meant the white kids, but the, everyone should go to school, yeah. right? Um, and everyone should be afforded an education and that's a human right. That kind of conceptually began at the end of the 19th century in our country. Mm. And it went through a lot of different revolutions over the course of the next uh, you know, 150 years or whatever. But one of the things that is happening now is that many of those people that you're talking about, many of those families that comprise what we call the shadow government, which is the people who are funding the campaigns for the people that then become representative in our in our government and are actually voting um, congressionally or are the head of an executive branch or whatever that is that has power and control. Those people that are funding the campaigns for those people through politically driven think tanks that are nonprofits. Um, a lot of them even, and, and this by the way is, is not bipartisan, whether they are conservative or liberal educational think tanks, they tend to prefer the privatization of education, especially through charter schools. And so they make nonprofit donations. Diane Ravitch talks about this in the book, Slaying Goliath, which is so brilliantly done and she honestly she's like one of she's so great to read like her vo you can hear her voice and everything that she writes and she's very passionate about what she writes about but she talks about how privatization gives people more control over the content and curriculum of the students that are in the school the charter school which is technically not a private school because it is receiving some local state federal funds but is majority funded by private organizations and nonprofits that are donated to and funded by people who own what? Uh, uh, important things. Very important, <laughs> expensive things. Really yeah. wealthy families, right? The DeVosses, the Koch brothers, the Gates, the Walton family, and fossil fuel industry, like you mentioned, all of those contribute massive amounts of dollars to these nonprofits that open um, charter schools that do not have to follow the same expectations other public schools have to follow. And if the whole point of public school was to give everyone a representative education that was equitable, 
as a human right. And you change that from being public to being privatized and funded through people with an agenda. Can you see how that becomes an adaptive challenge in the political frame yeah. for this idea of diversifying and, and limiting single narratives? Right. Yeah. So how, so what would you have, what would you have to do in the political frame? Like, how would you, how could you in a country that supports uh, charter schools and voucher systems and private schools, how could you, how could you make sure that every American was being educated with the intention of equitable representation in their content and curriculum? Um, I know like the, like the simple answer, but that's not really like the most effective. Answer. What's your simple answer? I'm my, dying to My know. simple answer <laughs> would be like, you know, send a poll out. Do the students feel representative or represented in their textbooks or in mm -hmm. their schoolwork or in their schools? Mm -hmm. The more complex answer I think might work better is probably having these companies, they would have to like come out and say that they donated X amount of money to this charter school. Like, there's no way of sugarcoating it. You have to say, I donated money here. And you have to sure. state their reason. They can and state their reason, they can sugarcoat that. Because they do talk about it. The Walton family talks frequently about how they've donated yeah. specifically to one in four charter schools that have opened in this country. Yeah. But how much money and where is that money mm -hmm. you know, going? They don't ever talk about why. Yeah, why are they sending that money? Unless it's, what do you think is the political answer for why did you donate to education? Your non-taxable donation to the nonprofit that you donated to that's an educational nonprofit. Why? Uh, well, I think it's because they're, I think there's a few different reasons. I think one could be because they're trying to create leaders, but creating leaders that would fight for things that they would find important or that would mm. keep them in power. Um, okay. but another reason could really just be trying to get people to believe your narrative so that when they grow up and they're released out in the world, like, holy crap, like there's this group of people out there that think the exact same way I do. Like mm -hmm. what a what an amazing coincidence. I should, probably, <laughs> I should probably like start buying their stuff. And I should probably buy all their stuff and with, maybe work for them. Yeah. Use their product. What an amazing coincidence. <laughs> okay. So the uh, there's three other frames. There's the human resources frame. I see this being an adaptive challenge related to the human resources frame in that I wonder when students who sit in my classroom who maybe don't feel like they're represented by the content or curriculum that I'm teaching, does that impact their relationship with me? Does that impact how they interact with me or how they interact with education and people within their educational sphere at all? Do you think that's an adaptive challenge in the, do you think that's something where people would have to change their minds in order to help them create change in that frame? Uh, changing that frame being like a better relationship with their teacher, a better like connection with their teacher. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I think I, I do. I, Let me ask you that. Cause you gave the example of Tesla. Yeah. Right. What if we came out and said, all right, you have to do an entire unit <laughs> on Tesla. In addition to an entire unit on Edison. Do you think every science teacher would say, that's a great idea. I'm going to go ahead and do that. No, no, I don't <laughs> think they would. So then does changing their mindsets, because this is an adaptive challenge, will that impact the human resources, right? Uh, yeah, it would, because you'd have students that want to learn about Tesla or you have like a past like, interest mm -hmm. in Tesla. That would spark their imagination and their interest and all these kinds of things. They'd be excited to come to class rather than just learning about Thomas Edison doing the same unit that their brother did mm -hmm. two years ago. They told you all about that you read about on YouTube because it's what everyone learns about. Okay. Yeah. Having choices is always great. Awesome. Um, in, in building, I, as an aside, I agree with you. I think when we give students choices in terms of what they learn about and we give them the most choices we can give them and they can find something that's representative of themselves in those choices. I think their interaction with educators is better. Does that make sense? Yeah, I agree. Um, within the symbolic frame, this is a tough one. 
everyone has a mission and vision. Every organization has a mission and vision and they're constantly um, changing it and reflecting on it and modifying it, which is important because the world is constantly changing. Students are changing, expectations, needs are changing, right? So we, we are always modifying that in theory. Um, what would we need to add to a mission or vision statement within the symbolic frame to deal with this adaptive challenge? Like what would we need to add to a mission or vision to deal with the fact that this would require people to change how they think about education? From the standpoint of like the school or from the... From the school, yeah. So think of the school as the organization or the district as the organization. Or you could think about federal DOE or the state DOE as the organization, however you want to look at it, or education as an entire organization, what would we have to change about our mission? And what, what do you think is our mission and vision? Why are, why are we here? <laughs> um, well, ultimately, I think we are here to learn mm -hmm. the students. Um, but the issue is, are you learning what you are interested in what you're curious about and what you believe to be true or are you learning what a billion dollar organization might think is true important or learn. important or like maybe the state thinks is important sure you know so would that have to become a part of the mission and vision for education would we need to add to that mission and vision symbolically that the content and curriculum is somehow influenced or, influenced yeah. as in student driven and representative equitably i would very much appreciate that i would have appreciated that yeah i think that would definitely be something i would want to see and i think a lot of other people would want to see in the mission statement sure all right last one the structural frame this is the logistical how are we going to do it? Mm -hmm. What are we going to use to do it? How are we going to pay for it? What, like when, where, that kind of thing. Yeah. Is this an adaptive challenge in, within the structural frame? Would we have to get people to change their way of thinking, their, their perspective on education, their goal um, with their teaching structurally? Yes, I think so. At least I think I'm going to start with the teachers from the teacher's point of view. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of teachers in here that genuinely care for their kids and want to um, promote creativity and um, like thinkers, people that think for themselves or are able to interpret things by themselves or mostly by themselves. Mm -hmm. But I think there's also teachers that not really aren't here for the money, but are here thinking they're doing the right thing, but the right thing to them is regurgitating more or less what the school board, like verbatim what the school board would tell them to, which is not always the best for the students. Okay. So yeah, I think you'd have to start there. You have to, I guess, have the teachers, some teachers reflect on, are you really doing, well, the school board wouldn't approve of it because the school board is the one to be benefiting from the, mm -hmm. the regurgitation. But if you had like some, someone else and, they ask the teacher, like, are you really doing what you want to teach? Or do you think your students are actually enjoying the curriculum? And would you be able to teach what you wanted to teach? Or would you have to teach the school board stuff? The canon. The canon, yeah. So, yeah, there is a, so within the school board, there's a curriculum committee. And they do focus on curriculum and content within that committee in every school board has a, a mm -hmm. curriculum and committee. Many school districts have curriculum coordinators who are influential in that area. And then also for every department at the high school level, there's a department head and they help to influence that too. Um, but that's a lot of trickle down, like it's <laughs> yeah. a lot going on there. Right. Um, and every person with an agenda inside of that takes away some percentage of autonomy. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they would have to change, in my perspective, they would have to change their minds about allowing more autonomy, not just for educators, but also for students, more freedom to choose, 
more freedom to focus on what engages or what interests you uh, and less of an emphasis on what we call perennialism, which is an educational philosophy where there is like a canon of things you have to learn, people you have to read, stuff you must know, yeah. and that we teach all those things and that's because they're the authority because they've been around the longest, right? And it's a shift away from perennialism into reconstructivism or building your knowledge based on on how you see your education going or what you're hoping for for your education. And so I, I think that's um, the structural frame is, is also impacted by this as an adaptive challenge. And lastly, the cohort that I belong to developed a, a fifth frame theoretically um, that we would like to see added to Bowman and Deal's four frames, mm -hmm. which is the eudaimonia frame. And eudaimonia is uh, Greek or comes from Greek word that's spelled almost the same, um, that basically means something synergy. It's holistic wellness in terms of tuning and aligning with itself. And do you think that for this particular adaptive challenge of making sure that we are not participating in the danger of a single narrative and that we are encouraging multiple narratives or perspectives on one event or story or topic, do you see an impact on that in terms of this organization's ability to tune or to align or to create synergy and efficiency through working, working together within every framework? Um, yeah. I know this is a hard one. <laughs> so, I'm trying to think. So I guess from like a a country-wide standpoint, there would be a lot of, that would be beneficial, I think, to a lot of schools, really every school in the country for the most part, but you would also leave. Here's my, like, wanting to be, like, a national defense major, like, <laughs> being, like, concerned of, like, external, like, propaganda, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, because if you could have, I guess, when you balance power levelly, you give more voice, which is always great, usually, but then you also could have you know, maybe like a Chinese Institute, like for example, there was the, um, the Confucius Institute got a lot of heat a few years ago and recently because they were abusing their presence at colleges and college campuses to spread pro Chinese communist party, uh, propaganda, which is pretty crazy. And it probably makes me sound a little bit crazy, but it did happen. And you don't was, sound crazy. <laughs> our history is long our country is a long history with communism you just hung crazy yeah. <laughs> so but i what i really like that you brought up is not looking at the microcosm of the synergy of one organization within education but the synergy of the nation as an educating body yeah deeming education as a human right are we working with synergy and tuning as a collective, as a whole nationwide organization? And I think you're, I think the, it's really poignant that you brought that up because you're absolutely right. There are really, remember I told you that this is not a bipartisan issue, mm -hmm. except for one thing, the voucher system. The voucher system is partisan, predominantly conservative, um, congressmen and lobbyists want a voucher system. What is the voucher system again? So the voucher system would be like, okay, I have my children, I have two children, and they can go to any school in the district. If they go to this one, I'll give them this money. If they don't go to that one, they don't want to go to that one, they want to go to this better rated school over here that has better um, scores and metrics of assessment in terms of how well the school is doing, then I'll let them take that money and go pay to go over there. Oh, so they're not getting scholarships. They're getting like just a, and universal... I'm going to take that money away from this school. Oh, federal, and send it over so there. Federal funding. Well, local state, federal funding yes. in general, you divert all funding. Oh, so like survival for that student, like there are people who really support the voucher system in terms of touting it as an equity 
idea that if you live in a neighborhood or a district or an area that struggles with education, has underperforming schools, you can use your voucher to pay to go to a different school and take money away from that struggling school and toss it into the school over here that's assessing better. I think that would be extremely problematic because we already have the issue of like, I was thinking of this documentary I watched, I can't remember what it was called, but it was a vice documentary on focusing on the school for children that struggle with um, like their home life or whatever. It's like a school for troubled children. I just, I just don't like calling it that, but I can't mm-hmm. remember if I should call it. It's in, I think Detroit. At-risk youth. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Yeah. <laughs> but it was just the struggle of having these schools that really get little to no funding and are funded mostly by like mm. grassroots community efforts, which usually people in lower income areas can't support something like that when they mm. already have to feed their kids, feed themselves, pay right. the bills, you know. It's just a, if you then took the funding, like the little funding that that school got away from them, they would die. There would be no place for these kids to go to school. And that does happen sometimes. Yeah. Um, you, they, there are people who are proponents of closing public schools that are under um, underperforming and diverting that money to charter schools, yeah. private schools. So uh, I think when you say the synergy, like looking at the eudaimonia frame of this, are we all working together towards... Um, changing minds or building uh, progress or being change agents towards supporting multiple narratives and not having the danger of a single narrative. If you look at the synergy of education nationally, there isn't any (laughs) to to build off of, right? Like we're, we're already struggling in that arena in terms of what do people think is, um, education should look like what do people think um should be the goal of education what should the content and curriculum be how should it should be structured the power dynamic of education um there there really isn't a whole lot of national synergy there so um i think that was a really good point that you brought that up because we do have this governing body the federal doe and -hmm. they do have the, the supremacy clause of if they create a policy that needs to be followed by the state and the local government. But we still have these other powers at play. We still have state governments, state DOEs that have influence over education and district school boards, district policymakers. So is there synergy there, right? Um, And I think based off of what you are getting at, I think probably not. Yeah. And so it would be very difficult. This, This certainly would not add to building synergy and it would have to be it would have to be considered as a part of this adaptive challenge right how do we get everyone on the same page yeah tuned to the same tuning fork hey you know what high five good job i'm so proud of you thank you very much for coming today and for talking with me on your last day of school where you could be out and about with your friends and doing really fun cool things but you're still here after school talking to me about these very complex uh, issues, but um, I'm really happy to have had you. So thank you for having me. Yeah, and honestly, I would be doing this exact same thing, but at home with the internet. So, <laughs> this is a lot more fun. Well, I will take that. I'll take that as a compliment.